Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Yeah, so if you have fudge that you've made, whether it's a successful batch or a failure, you can chop it up and melt it into hot milk. And it's like the best hot cocoa in the world. That was Stella Parks, pastry chef and author of Brave Tart. Later on the show, Parks will give us a lesson in better baking, along with a real history of the chocolate chip cookie. But first, I chat with Rose Tucker and Matthew Sally. Their film Barbecue spans 12 countries, including whole roasted marmot from Mongolia to hangy and all-day pit barbecue from New Zealand. Matt and Rose, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. Your documentary Barbecue goes all over the world, but some surprising places, uh, obviously South Africa, Japan, Australia, but the Philippines, Uruguay, uh, Mongolia, I thought was interesting, New Zealand. You know, let me just start with this question. Given the amount of time and effort one goes to for certain barbecue, especially in New Zealand, where you dig a hole, heat up the metal, the rocks, put it in, cages full of food, cover it over, wait a few hours. There are easier ways to get food on the table. So did you come away with this thinking that this really has little to do with the actual cooking and more about everything else surrounding it? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, when we you know, started doing this film, we sort of thought to ourselves, it's, it's a film about barbecue, but really it's not a film about barbecue. It's, it's all the reasons why people just have to gather around a fire and have stories and, and have a reason to bring a community together. So, you know, I think even when we're in South Africa, something we learned was that often people will try and extend the time it takes to cook something just uh, as an excuse to spend even more time with friends. And in New Zealand, the food is almost like an afterthought. When it comes out at the end of the day, you you eat it and you enjoy it, but it's been that whole day long of laughing and talking and drinking. That, that That's really the event. Yeah, the traditional Maori people have a concept of the whanau, which is the, the extended family, which when we when we were told we would be doing a hungi with, uh, the ex- with the family, I thought it would be five or ten people, but it ended up being 40 or 50. So there is definitely uh, any excuse to bring people together. So the hungi is H-A-N-G-I, right? Is that how you spell it? Yep, that that's is. right. Um, could, could you just describe that process? Because I, w- I was watching it yesterday going like, this is, I mean, I like hard work. But this is hard work. Could you just describe what they do to make this happen? Sure. Well, a, a traditional hungi, which is what we witnessed, is you you go out usually to uh, your family's marae, which is like your tribal lands, and you will go out and you will harvest the wood. So in the situation we were filming, they went out and they, they chainsawed down the wood, brought it back to the campsite, dug a giant hole, which took, you know, a lot of time, got to build a big fire you got to let that fire get really, really hot. And then just when it's sort of all burnt down to really, really hot coals is when you put the hot rocks in. And it has to be crazy, crazy hot because you need that heat to be able to cook the meat that then goes in on top of the hot stones. And and the stones that they use were actually, you know, we even learned that, that the temperatures they reach, you know, probably in excess of a thousand degrees, it, that's so hot that they actually have to try and find volcanic stones because if they use regular stones, they actually can, can explode. Yeah, we, a lot of the guys <laughs> we were filming with had, you know, horror stories of like exploding rocks. And one guy had a scar on his forehead from, you know, a rock flying out of the pit and, and hitting him just above the eye. So it's uh, it can be a dangerous uh, pastime as well. Okay, now let's go to my favorite, my favorite part, Mongolia. So yeah. you know, I, I was busy. I was making some coffee or tea yesterday, and I, I was watching it on my computer, <laughs> and all of a sudden I say a guy blowing into the neck hole of a marmot, <laughs> and I'm going like, I said, this can't be the same movie. So could you just <laughs> describe what he was doing and why he was doing it? <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, it's a technique where you cut the head off the animal. It can be a marmot. It can be a goat. They're the two that we featured in the film. Um, but the technique's the same, basically. You want to maintain the skin intact because that's going to become your cooking sack, effectively. So when you see him inflating the marmot skin, what he's doing is checking for holes because if there's any holes, I the see. steam's going to escape and it's not going to cook properly. So he... he blows into the carcass, it blows up like a balloon, he squeezes it a little bit, you know, checking, 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 determines that it's good to go. Then you get the meat and bones that have been cut up and they go back into that skin sack along with boiling hot rocks. So, again, we've got the hot rocks happening. So, but um, can, so can they I stop you for in... a second? So yeah. how do you, having field-dressed a number of deer in my time, how do you <laughs> possibly uh, eviscerate and clean out the animal just through the neck hole because you, you, you're well, not gutting it. How do you do that? They peeled it back. 
So, yeah. So it's just oh, the skin. I missed yeah. that. It okay. was like, like the pelt. Yeah. Yeah. So you're skinning it, peeling it back on itself. Yeah. Um, so it, it okay. with difficulty, um, <laughs> and then you stitch up that neck hole and the whole thing inflates with the steam inside. And while it's cooking from the inside out, you then blowtorch it from the outside to burn off all the fur and cook the skin from the outside. Um, so let's talk about the Philippines, the whole roast pig. It was cooked over a bed of coals. There was a long uh, stake through the, through the pig and it was rolled by hand back and yeah. forth constantly the whole time. Is that right? Yeah. So we focused on a single person who made lechon in the Philippines, a guy called Juni, and he was effectively your, your backyard chef for hire. Basically, yeah, Juni um, guts and prepares the animal and then cooks it over coals right there in, in the backyard. And he hand rolls it because that way he can very, very carefully control what is quite a high degree of heat on it and basically work towards the lechon's crispy skin, which is what uh, everybody looks forward to. He told us that if he takes a break for more than about 20, 30 seconds, he could, he could ruin a whole day's work. So he huh. would just sit there, roll it by hand. He told me he's rolled three. He could do two with his feet and one hand and still smoke a cigarette in the other. So I was very, very impressed by his dexterity. <laughs> I've I've done like sixty pound pigs, but I have to say the the skin never got super crispy. So obviously he knows he was he was doing it for decades, right? He'd been doing this a long time. Yeah, he'd oh, be, yeah. yeah, he'd sort of grown up. It's it's all he did. And the, apparently the way it works is when you have the family celebration, there's an order to it where the the senior citizens, the the grandmas and the grandpas, get the first bit of the crispy skin, and then if you're you know about twenty years old, you get about last in line. So there's a bit of an order to it, and uh, apparently grandmas are known for taking a bit more than their fair share of the crispy skin. So, uh, you know, a bit controversial. <laughs> well, you have something to look forward to in your old age, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> and, and some of the grilling was that people were just grilling sausages. And I found those people as charming as the people who were working all day, right? Oh, yeah. Well, you're, you're talking about Australian barbecue there, yeah. which is very little more than a uh, so, yeah sausage on a grill with a piece of bread and some ketchup and some onions, maybe, if you're feeling fancy. Um, so, and, and we're from Australia. <laughs> but, yeah. So this is, in Australia, it's all about simplicity. You know, I always joke that uh, the, tr- the real proper Aussie barbecue is all about feeding 100 people for $100. You know, quick, easy, get to the beer as quickly as possible. <laughs> yeah, $100 for 100 people. I, I think that's, yeah. a, that's a T-shirt, right? Or that should be on the side of your barbecue <laughs> truck, $100 for 100 people. So... A project like this inevitably changes one, I would assume. Are you different now that you've been through this process? Yeah, I think we always say that when we started this film, we sort of had this like hypothesis in in need of um, testing. And that was that there's there's more that brings the world together than, than drives it apart. And it was very interesting because we sort of started shooting this film in about 2016. 15, 16. And the world has changed a lot just in the last few years. You know, it's a place that on the surface has a lot less tolerance and is sort of veering into some dangerous territory. But our experience of what we saw just visiting regular communities of regular people around the world just filled us with a lot of hope. The idea that people can do things so differently and that on the surface cultures can seem so different but when you drill down to it the reason why the mongolian uh, family gathered around the bulldog to eat marmot is exactly the same as why a bunch of aussies outside a pub in australia have a couple of snags on the barbie and so you know that was the hypothesis we were hoping would be true and then to find it everywhere we looked was uh really reaffirming 
Thanks, guys. Matt and Rose, uh, the barbecue documentary, really, really fascinating. And uh, it, it also had a strong human interest to it. It wasn't just technique. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks oh, for having thank us. you for having us. That was Rose Tucker and Matthew Sally. Their film is called Barbecue. You can subscribe and listen to Mill Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Just subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded right to your phone. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will be taking your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready? I am so ready, Chris. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Janet King. Hi, Janet King. How are you? I'm good. How can we help you? I have a question about honey. Okay. Okay. Uh, when I go to the grocery store and I buy honey in the Little Bear, it's usually real liquidy and it stays that way. My son brings home local honey because he thinks it's good for allergies. And it goes solid like right away. Yep. And I was just curious about the difference in how it's processed and if that process changes the nutritional value of the honey. Well, I kept bees for many years, and my honey also crystallized. The way to fix that is to take the top off, put it in the saucepan with water coming about half, two-thirds up the side, and uh, heat the honey to about 160 degrees, and that's when the crystals melt. Uh-huh. It won't stop it recrystallizing a few months later, but that'll solve the problem. I think raw honey is much better. I know in Vermont people talk about the fact that it will stop allergies. It's very good for you. The commercial uh-huh. stuff has been heated. It's of been course, pasteurized, pasteurized, which is what keeps it from right. crystallizing. It's been treated. Uh-huh. I actually bought, this is shameful, about a month ago, I went to the supermarket and I bought one of the little bear things. <gasps> well, now, let me explain why. Because <gasps> my wife was very upset because my real honey was making sticky and making a mess. So I thought, I, okay, I'd make her happy. I tasted that. It was garbage. It was Compared awful. to your, yeah. No, it was just awful. So I think getting good local honey is, uh, is a great it's a way idea. to go. And just, as I said, top off in water, 160, it'll melt the crystals. Yeah. I agree with Chris. I just fell over. <laughs> She agreed with me. It's rare we agree. I had to say it. Janet, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I sometimes feel like I'm getting Carol's syrup at the grocery store when I buy the bear and the honey because it tastes kind of like honey, but I think the local does taste better. Yes. Yeah, it's like pancake syrup, Yeah, which is not actually maple syrup. No. And also the taste of honey varies, obviously, totally depending on the flowers at the time. Mm -hmm. So like a buckwheat honey and stuff is very strong. Some of it's too strong, actually. Mm-hmm. You might have a very strong-tasting honey and a milder one, depending on how you want to use it. But the real deal is much better than I the agree. stuff supermarket. Yep. yep. All right, Janet. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Jessica. Just a question about oil temperature. My husband and I have an ongoing debate about the temperature of oil or butter, to use whenever cooking on the stovetop. I like to, like, leisurely chop, say, my onions and then throw them into a cold pan before I heat them up. I think because I feel like that I have better control of the cooking process. But my husband thinks the oil should be heated prior to adding anything to the pan, I think maybe to speed up the process. So my question is, what, if any, is the resulting effect of the starting temperature of the oil or the butter? And what do you recommend for different dishes? Well, it sort of depends on what you're trying to accomplish. 
with onions, I don't think it'd be terrible to start them in a cold pan, but generally I start something in a cold pan if I want to pull out its flavor. So okay. like garlic, I always start in a cold pan. Onions, not so much. I just cook them low and slow until they, you know, do what they're supposed to do first, get translucent and then get caramelized. But, you know, obviously a steak, you don't want to start in a cold pan or a vegetable, you don't want to start in a cold pan because the steak won't sear, the vegetable will get overcooked. So it sort of depends on what your end result is. The other reason to heat up an oil, for example, in a pan is when the oil starts to smoke, you know, the pan is up to a saute temperature, 400 to 450 degrees. So if you're sauteing, you want to brown something, you always want to bring the pan up. If a pan's 300 degrees, you put a bunch of meat in it, it's just going to stew. Steam, yeah. So as Sarah said, it depends on what you want to do. But, you know, I agree with you about the onions. I cook onions, start with a cold pan, cook them very low and slow. And also the other thing I found is that uh, lower temperatures now, other than searing, you're not going to burn something quickly. It's a more gentle way to cook. And I find it safer. You know, if you get a phone call, kid comes in, there's a problem. If you're using high heat, two or three minutes unattended can be a disaster. So things like onions can cook for half an hour low and slow, and it's fine. Well, actually, it's better. I mean, if you just sear onions quickly and don't let them get softened and then, you know, sort of brown, they don't give you the same depth of flavor at all. The same thing that makes you cry is the same thing that onions give you when you cook them low and slow. The sulfur compounds sort of break down and develop this great depth of flavor when you cook low and slow. You know, I've never tried onions in a cold pan, but I think I will now. Someone else told me, a chef in Boston said, it was Barbara Lynch, actually. She said, listen to the pan. Yeah. Because if you listen, you can tell if things cooking at the right temperature, Mm -hmm. especially like onions. So it should be a very soft, even sound. Right. But if you get sort of an angry sound in the pan, you know that it's overcooking. It's too high. So gentleness in onions, I think, is a good thing. Right. So Not with meat. So the answer is your husband's wrong. Isn't that fun? (laughs) No, it sounds like we're actually both right, kind of depending on what, depending um, on what, what we're is. looking to yeah. do. Sarah's smiling broadly, by the way. You know, we all get very sort of know it all in the kitchen, and I'm not, I'm no innocent here either. It's important to just be open. If you it were works, French trained. I know, French but if trained. it works in the end, who cares? Oh. Anyway. Right. Okay. Well, anyway, thanks for calling so you can cook your onions low and slow. Don't worry about it. Yes. And okay. garlic for no. sure, start in yeah. a cold pan. Right. Okay. Great. Okay. Thank thanks. you. Thanks all right, calling. Jessica. Bye bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure or a question, give us a ring anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. That number is 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Hi, this is Corey Matthews. Hi, Corey. What's your question? I am trying to cook my wife's favorite meal, and it is a spaghetti squash. Oh. And we just got back from the hospital. She just had a baby yesterday. And <gasps> Congratulations! I to How exciting! Oh, yeah, and I thought this could be a really cool opportunity to be a first-time caller and cook what she wants. So <laughs> the spaghetti squash that she likes is actually something that has a spice in it called caravan. And I've done a lot of research on this, and I can't find out where it is, how to get it, if I can make it. Sounds like sort of a curry kind of spice. It sounds like North Africa, right? I mean, is it sort of have some warm spices in it too? It does. It was dried fruit, pistachio, pine nuts, mint, um, and lemon. Hmm. Is this a name someone just made up for the spices? We found it at a restaurant, and it was a delicious dish. 
Well, you know, it's interesting that spice combinations, blends, even for zatar or uh, dukkha or other things, every place has its own recipe. There's no consistency whatsoever, so you'd have to just play around with, play it. Around with it because uh, different places have totally different ways of doing the blends. Was there a liquid in there too? I mean, was it sort of like spaghetti with liquid? Yes. It said on the menu, it said um, preserved lemon. Oh. So I don't oh. know if that could have been it. Definitely North Africa. North Africa. Yeah. yeah. But the preserved lemon wouldn't have provided the sauce. Was there any kind of fat in there that you were aware of? No, it, it, I did not detect fat or anything like that. It was just a really interesting balance of the different flavors that they used. Like Chris said, it was warm. There's pistachio nut in there, so you could definitely detect that. Was it spicy at all? No, it was not. So maybe cardamom, cumin, cinnamon? That, yeah, that could definitely be it. Actually, that might be it now that I'm thinking about it. And is, is there a, a balance as to what you would use with those three? Is it equal parts or? Very small amounts. Cloves, tiny, a quarter teaspoon. Cinnamon, maybe double the cloves. Cardamom and cloves, small. Cinnamon, twice as much, I would say. And then cumin the most. Cumin, the by most. far the most, yeah. Did you try interviewing the chef? No, I did not. Always a good idea. You can flatter them sometimes into giving you their secrets. It doesn't work with you. I'll tell you anything. <laughs> anything at all. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> okay. As to how to start that conversation. Yeah, yeah. Go in and say we, we just had a child. Yes, use the child card. And I want to make something for my wife as a special thing. And th- there you I go. just wonder if you, you could give me some pointers. Yeah. I pr- and then just say I promise I won't give it to anybody else. I'm just a home cook. And hopefully you'll flatter them into giving it to you. It was an amazing dish, and I'd love to be able to even get somewhat close to it. It was it was quite nice. Sounds fabulous, and congratulations. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate your help with this. Okay. Okay, Corey. Our pleasure. Okay. Thanks. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Stella Parks about the science of baking and the secret history of iconic American desserts. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. 
That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today I chat with Stella Park. She's a pastry chef, also author of the new book, Brave Tart. Part history and part cookbook, Brave Tart reveals the stories and the science behind classic American desserts. Stella, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing, Chris? Good. So uh, you graduated from the CIA, you worked as a pastry chef, and then you decided to move to Tokyo for six months. <laughs> what, what, what did you do? I bet you were not a pastry chef in Tokyo. What did you do in Tokyo? No, I was uh, I was enrolled in language school full time. I was uh, hoping to one day work as a pastry chef there. But of course, that wouldn't really be possible without a thorough grasp of the language. So uh, I enrolled in language school and that was tentatively my goal. It did not pan out, but uh, I made it through two semesters of 40 hours a week. So that was a significant amount of, of language education. So Brave Tart, uh, you're a senior writer at Serious Eats. Uh, Kenji Lopez-Alt is uh, your mentor, I guess, in some ways. Um, and just talk about Brave Tart. You have classic American desserts. You have classic American candies. You have classic American uh, snacks like Twinkies and stuff, Fig Newtons you can make at home. You even have a recipe for rainbow sprinkles, which was interesting. Um, and you even had a <laughs> recipe for McDonald's apple turnover you can do at home. So w- what's the concept of the book? Uh, for me, a lot of it has to do with taking a holistic approach to our experience of growing up in America and really trying to honor both sides of that equation, which for me means, you know, the kinds of pies and cakes and cookies that we would have at home, but also all of the snack foods that would be, you know, pretty ubiquitous at school or, you know, on field trips or things that aren't made from scratch. And, uh, you know, Proust had his Madeline and I had Oreos. So to me, it was just very natural, but I think a lot of times pastry chefs and food writers in general can kind of approach those types of snack foods as less than um, their guilty pleasures or their kind of kitschy knockoffs. And if you look at the type of copycat recipes that you see online or in books, in a bookstore, they're very lowbrow. It's like, you know, Dr. Bob's secret to snack cake heaven. And it's like, it's not really a a technique oriented approach. So I wanted to to find a way to make these types of desserts accessible to the home cook. I, I'm going to describe your book differently. I think you went into this repertoire of American desserts with your eyes wide open and you wanted to do the history, right? Because most of these recipes start with some history. Yeah. And, and you wanted to really find out where they came from. And this is a quote uh, at the beginning. It says, food writers tell us that cheesecake dates back to ancient Greece but give me a break. Some guy might have shoved globs of cheese and honey into a kiln, but unless he picked up cream cheese and graham crackers at the Agora, he sure as Hades didn't bake a cheesecake. So you have some attitude here, and you do great research. We were chatting earlier that uh, I propagated a lie, you've now told me, when I did uh, a Fanny Farmer dinner years ago. I thought, and I was told in the history books, that Boston cream pie was invented at the Parker House in Boston, uh, and your your research found what? I found out that there there was no evidence for there ever being chocolate on a Boston cream pie until well into the 1930s, and that by all accounts it was an innovation that was brought on in advertisements from companies like General Mills and Pillsbury that they were using 
this as a way to kind of dress up an old standby and, and draw new attention to it. Uh, did Ruth Wakefield really invent the chocolate chip cookie? What do you say? Certainly not. Um, She did popularize them. She had a pretty incredible reach at the time that her recipe was published. She had already put out a cookbook, the Toll House Tried and True Recipes. I think it was the chocolate chip cookies didn't appear in it until maybe the fourth edition. So she was already a well-established cookbook author and a a presence in the culinary landscape. Her recipes would appear in newspapers and, and stuff like that. So by partnering with Nestle and specifying a specific type of chocolate and having a well-tested recipe, she got people making this type of cookie at home. And that's that's no small feat. Uh, but long before her recipe was ever published, we have printed advertisements for chocolate chip cookies being sold by the pound at supermarkets that had at least a interstate distribution level like Kroger. Um, so we, we know they predate her. This is It's in the record books. It's fact. Now it's time for a food fight. So (laughs) apple pies, you know, I've always said this. If you want to know if someone can cook, ask them to make an apple pie. Um, But your recipe, I I don't get it. Your recipe says, you said something very interesting. You said if if the apples, the filling get over 195 degrees, they break down, sort of turn to applesauce, which is pretty interesting. So you know when your pie's done by you using an Instarete thermometer. But you said you cook it sort of low and slow, and the recipe says 400 degrees for over an hour. Is that low and slow? For the volume of apples, I think it is. Um, you know, you could have a, a lower temperature with a smaller pie and, and it'd ha- be a different kind of result. There's like five pounds of apples okay. that go into my pie. Or it starts out with like four, four and a half pounds maybe is the starting weight of the whole apples. So it's, it's a lot of apples. And, you know, the idea is just to keep the apples themselves below uh, the boiling point so that they don't break down. Uh, a lot of recipes, you know, do cook the apples until they're you know, juicy and bubbly, and that can work well. There's like a lot of different ways to obviously make an apple pie, and there's a lot of completely valid approaches. But I like using tapioca starch, so the ratio of starch to sugar and fruit that I use does better with this kind of like lower cooking temperature that keeps the the apples integrity intact. Uh, we're on radio, of course, but I'm going to ask you to do something visual, which is to frost and decorate a cake. So. If you have two layers of yellow cake or white cake, how do you get things even? How do you frost? How do you not get cake crumbs into your frosting? What What are some tricks for, for someone who, let's say, does this once a year for a birthday? Yeah, so I always recommend leveling a cake with a serrated knife, just trimming off the domes on top. And for starters, that clearly helps the, the cake stack up nice and level. You know, sometimes you see people, if you don't do that, you think, oh, this isn't too bad. I'll just stack them up. But it's like the princess and the pea, like the small, subtle doming of that first cake really exaggerates when the second cake is put on top. And sometimes that can stress the cake out and cause a crack because it's being bent more than it can really withstand. So let's do a a bunch of quick questions and answers. There's some really cool stuff in your book. Um, So what's the secret to a McDonald's apple turnover? Freeze-dried apples. Uh, it's it's a it's a cool way to both thicken and layer in more flavor into the pie. I just it's a pretty classic apple spice blend, but then to that I also add a, a generous amount of freeze dried apples that have been ground into a fine powder, and so these like tiny little bits of apples will absorb moisture from the fresh apples in the filling, and offset that liquid presence in the in the baked apple pie while also contributing a secondary layer of apple flavor. And uh, it's, it's a pretty cool little trick. 
Uh, homemade Twinkie. There, there's an odd ingredient in that recipe, I believe. Club soda. Yeah, I use. Uh, I think a lot of people are a little bit scared at making chiffon style cakes at home or any type of, you know, whipped egg kind of cake, a foam. People are afraid of deflating it or crushing it. Um, and so instead of using water, which is a pretty traditional ingredient in any type of American chiffon cake, uh, I use club soda and the the bubbles and the carbonation and the fizz from that just kind of mm. help ensure that if you overmix it by being a little rough with the spatula, that the air cells that you've crushed through maybe a little bit of a imprecise technique are kind of repopulated by the carbonation in the water. How do you turn fudge into hot cocoa? Uh, yeah, so if you have fudge that you've made, whether it's a successful batch or a failure, it's essentially just a bunch of chocolate and milk and sugar that's all in like one concentrated packet. So you can chop it up and melt it into hot milk. And it's like the best hot cocoa in the world. That, yeah, that really caught my attention. Um, there's an interesting ingredient in blondies as well. Yeah, so uh, maybe a double layer of interesting ingredients. I use white chocolate in my blondies. A lot of blondies are entirely chocolate-free. So in order to get the same kind of glossy crust and fudgy texture that we think of when in a traditional chocolate brownie, I wanted to include white chocolate. And then to kind of up the ante, since a lot of people have some complaints about the lack of flavor in white chocolate. Uh, I like to caramelize that white chocolate in the oven, in a low oven, to kind of help get some browning going on and these kind of caramel notes. Uh, Snickerdoodles, uh, those are really hard to make. I think they're the hardest cookie to make because they're sort of light and they collapse easily. Is there some trick to to making a, a snickerdoodle with just the right texture? You're kind of putting all of your eggs in one basket with butter because it has, you know, a uniform melting point. But when you introduce coconut oil, you've got like kind of two melting points that happen. And together in the cookie, they kind of create some interesting textures and some interesting spread uh, that I find to be really nice together. So a, a lot of people say that the reason some people don't cook is fear of failure, right? That, sort of that's the, the uh, hurdle. Uh, and baking, you know, that's times 10, right? Uh, because you're mm. much more likely to fail in an oven than you are on the stovetop. Are, are there two or three pieces of advice you give to people or assuage their concern about failure to get them into the kitchen and baking? Uh, I think first and foremost would be investing in a scale. Uh, that really takes care of a lot of the problems that happen because, you know, if you don't know how someone measures their flour when you're following a recipe that's written by volume, you're going to be out of luck. Or if you're, you know, if you're, if you're relying on recipes that are strictly based on volume, it's, it can be a kind of a crapshoot. I feel like having a scale alone and working with recipes that are already based in weight is, is a lot. Last question. What's the most amazing, annoying, difficult, spectacular dessert you've ever made? Oh gosh. Homemade Butterfingers, hands down, no comparison. How do you make them? <laughs> it's exactly like making croissants, except the dough is hard caramel and the filling is peanut butter. So as you can imagine, those <laughs> that are, doesn't sound um, some... <laughs> possible, actually. <laughs> no, it's it's entirely possible, but it's, it is very difficult. The, the hard caramel has to be very warm to work with it. So typically this is a type of dessert a professional pastry chef would make in a, in a confectionery shop under a, a sugar lamp. 
to keep the caramel like warm and fluid. And I was just kind of determined for some reason to crack this recipe for the home cook. And so you, you make this caramel and you like toss it in the oven and keep it like at a really like low heat, like, I don't know, like 150 or something, just so it's like warm and pliable and a little bit fluid. And then you make kind of a filling of like peanut butter and cornflakes. The cornflakes just kind of add a little bit of extra crunch and the peanut butter is essentially the primary flavoring. And you lock it in just like you'd make croissants. You have a you know, a big uh, rectangle of the hard caramel. And then on half of it, you put a big square of the peanut butter cornflake mixture, and then you fold it in half and seal the edges. And then you kind of heat it back up and then roll it out. And then you just start doing folds and turns exactly like making a croissant, but you have to keep it really hot and you have to work fast. And it's like an all day process. It takes forever. It's if you think croissants take a long time, it's it's even longer than that. And the result is kind of amazing it's easily also the best thing that i've ever made if you ever think about sending me a christmas present that would that would be it <laughs> stella parks uh brave tart great book great research real pro and the recipes look terrific thank you thank you so much for having me that was pastry chef stella parks her new book is called brave tart iconic american desserts You know, I always thought that the Parker House Hotel had invented Boston cream pie in the late 19th century. Since chocolate was a relatively new and expensive ingredient, a sponge cake filled with custard and drizzled with ganache was a special dessert indeed. Except, of course, this story is fake news. By researching Parker House menus and local newspapers, Stella Parks didn't find one mention of this dessert. Parks also discovered that Ruth Wakefield did not invent the chocolate chip cookie. So maybe it's true. Myth is more potent than history. It tastes better, too. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, Austrian plum cake. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm good. You know, almost every summer we go to Salzburg because we have family there. My wife does. Her mother actually grew up in Salzburg. There's a little cafe. It's not far from the Hotel Soccer, right on the river. And it has amazing desserts. I mean, 10 layers, 15 layers. These torts are just absolutely amazing. And they also have some more rustic cakes, like a plum cake, for example. And these are made often with rye flour or sort of darker flours. They're yeasty cakes, sometimes a little bit better for wintry days. But we thought we'd take that concept of a plum cake, simplify it, and bring it back to Milk Street. So how do we get started? So at Milk Street, we wanted to make this even simpler. And so instead of using a yeasted cake like you had talked about, Chris, we decided to use baking powder as the leavener. And we also increased the butter and used what's called the reverse creaming method. So rather than creaming your butter and sugar together, you actually coat the flour in the butter, and that keeps gluten from developing to keep your cake nice and tender. So then you just add the rest of the ingredients, the eggs, etc., to the bowl? That's right. So it's a pretty standard cake from there. You do want to make sure that you're using softened butter because cold butter won't blend well into those ingredients, which is really important when you're doing reverse creaming. And then, of course, we move on to the plums. So with the plums, am I going to have to be like a, a pastry chef to do this, or can I just throw them in the batter or what? You don't need to be a pastry chef. We're not that fussy, Chris. You're going to use about a pound and a quarter of plums, and you're going to just quarter them and then arrange them on the batter in concentric circles. But you could use red plums or black plums. Just make sure that they're ripe but not mushy because you don't want the cake to be too wet. So you're saying that I could do this? You could do this. 
<laughs> so if I can do it, anybody can do it. That's so right. this bakes in what a moderate oven for what forty five minutes or That's something. That's right, Chris. So it bakes at three twenty five for over an hour, and you just want to make sure the batter is fully cooked. So when you test that the batter is done, you want to make sure there's no wet crumbs that are clinging to the toothpick. Yeah, we did find that because the top layer has a lot of plums in it, it sort of shields the middle of the cake from the heat of the oven. So you really have to thoroughly cook this, otherwise the inside is going to be undercooked, right? That's right. Catherine, thank you very much. Austrian plum cake brought home to Milk Street. It's no longer a winter dessert. It's actually great for summer. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. For the recipe for Austrian plum cake, go to 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready? I think it's time to do this. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Helen. Hi, Helen. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Orcas Island, Washington. You know, that is the, one of the most beautiful places. It looks like Vermont to me. Mm-hmm. It has farms and rolling hills, and it's... Uh, yeah. I'm jealous. Anyway, so how, how can we help you in the kitchen? I am wondering how the baking strips that you soak and put around your pan work. How does it keep a cake level? Well, what it really does is avoids the outside of the cake overcooking as the evaporation cools the outside. So cakes tend to cook from the outside in, and so the metal heats up and the outside of the cake rises and sets before the inside. So it'll give you a more level cake because the outside's not going to rise faster than the center and you'll end up with a more even cake. I've used them, actually. I've never I've, used them. I've never even heard of them. What? Yeah. Come I'm on. like, oh, my goodness. I got to this ripe old age, and I well. don't. It's like a 60s, 70s thing. Yeah, no, I've used them. They were Where pretty well. Where do you well. buy them? Uh, you can Wilton Cake Decorating, I think, has them. I or... have to help the people like me who just have never heard well, of this. Well, there's a place. It's just open called Amazon. <laughs> you can. Mm. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Ouch. Wilton Cake Decorating. I'm going But anyway, there. it evaporates, and, and that cools down the outside. That and, makes and, sense. And very often, people have cake problems. The center rises more slowly, the outside rises and sets, and the center just never rises right. as high. Right. So Anyway, they do work. Yeah, they're pretty cool. Okay. Yep. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate yep. that. Thanks, our, Helen. Our pleasure. Thank you, Helen. Right. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Give us a call anytime with your questions at 855-426-9843. That number, once again, is 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Oh, well, this is Elizabeth from Nashua, New Hampshire. Oh, hello. How can we help you? 
Well, I have a question on crab cakes I was making. After I mixed all the ingredients together, it was very, very wet, and it wouldn't hold together. So when I tried to fry it, even it didn't hold together. And I'm wondering what I did wrong or what I could use to correct that problem of it being so wet. Well, let's start with what did you put in there? Well, I put a crab meat, a pound of that, some crackers, onions, bell pepper, mayonnaise, and one egg, Worcestershire sauce, dry mustard, lemon juice, a half a lemon juiced, and garlic powder, salt and pepper. Let me suggest one thing for starts. I mean, a lot of people put, you know, a binder in, and it sounds like you did too. Did you chill it? After I had that problem, I did put it in the fridge and try it again the next day, and that didn't seem to help much. And the only other thing that I used Miracle Whip. What kind of crab were you using? It wasn't expensive. It was in a container that I got at the deli. Was the crab itself wet? I didn't think so. The onion and the green bell pepper, was it chopped really fine? Well, it's said to do that, but I don't chop anything very fine. Because that could be part of the problem, too. You've got these okay. chunks that are not helping it to come together, the mixture. Uh-huh. Um, so you might want to either leave them out or chop them really fine. Okay, my okay. turn now? Yes, Chris okay. is dying to weigh in. Well, you, you have, what, four cups of filling when you're done? Yes, it could be that, yes. Well, it sounds like one egg is not enough. For binder. Well, I was wondering. Yeah, yeah. I would just add, add an egg, and I would try real mayo. I don't know if Miracle Whip actually would have the same binding characteristics as real mayo, right? I don't know what goes into Miracle Whip, frankly. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> and it probably doesn't have eggs in it. Who knows? Oh, that's a thought. No, I, I would try real mayo and double the eggs to two. And give two. that a shot, because mayo and eggs should be a pretty good binder. Yeah. And how many crackers? A uh, third of a cup. Oh, that's not that very much... I would increase the crackers to half a cup, add an egg, and use real mayo. So uh, a half a cup of crackers yeah. and a, another egg and real mayonnaise. Yes. And okay, I say put a few good. little crumbs or even panko on the outside, like shape them into uh, crab cakes and then just dip them quickly in panko, which will give a nice crust on the outside and maybe help to hold them together. That even be tastier, too. Yeah, and I, I still think you should shape them into crab cakes and chill them that way. Okay. Um, see if that helps. And, and finally, chopping, I agree. I mean, I, I made little turkey burgers sometimes. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you don't get the ingredients really well chopped, chopped. They, they'll fall They'll break apart. it up. They'll, they'll break, break it, up. it up. So either leave them out or chop them finely or, uh, or use really the food finely. process. Finely chopped onions are really wet, aren't they? Grated, they're wet. Finely chopped, not so much, unless your knife was really dull. You know, you can grate them. And put them in a kitchen towel and squeeze, squeeze them, them out and get the liquid out. That's a good idea. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What a pleasure it is to talk with you two. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you so much yeah. for helping Our me. Our pleasure. Thanks for calling. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. Here at Milk Street, we like to use kitchen tools in lots of unorthodox ways. So here are four ways to use your whisk that maybe you haven't thought of. First tip is stirring pasta. You know, whisk is the best tool for stirring chubby, chunky, or tiny pasta shapes that may otherwise stick together. The second is whisking couscous. We were in Tunisia a few months ago. We found out the secret to light couscous. 
was to lightly oil the hydrated pasta and then stir it vigorously with a large, fine-wired whisk. Makes all the difference in the world. Number three, folding cake batter. You know, most recipes have you use a spatula to blend the whipped eggs into the batter, but we prefer sticking with a whisk. It does a far better job of actually blending the batter together without deflating the volume of the eggs. By the way, a large whisk is best, and use it very gently to fold in the whites. You're not actually whisking. Hot chocolate is another great tip. We recently visited Oaxaca and were served a very bold-tasting, nut-and-vanilla-flavored hot chocolate with a frothy top. Well, in Mexico, they use a wooden tool called a molinillo to froth the hot liquid, but we found a whisk works just as well. There you go, four ways to use a whisk you hadn't thought of. You can find out more at MilkStreetRadio.com. Next up, it's Dan Pashman of The Sporkful. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. How have you been? Pretty good. How much time have you spent in Southern California? You're, you're a big TV star. You must go to L.A. now and again. Yeah, a fair amount of time. Yeah. You ever eat donuts there? Yes, uh, about an hour south of town, there's a, a lot of Mexican uh, bakeries, and they make terrific pastries, including donuts, yes. Interesting. I have not been to those. But a couple years ago, I was driving around L.A., and I'm, I'm a sucker for donuts. They're one of my favorite sweets. And I noticed that there are tons of mom-and-pop donut shops in L.A. Hmm. L.A., not a place that I associate with decadent sweets. You know, I think of L.A. as more like great Mexican food, great Asian food, and then maybe like wheatgrass shots. <laughs> so great. I, I'm noticing all these independent mom-and-pop shops, and I, and I love them, and I'm, and I'm gorging myself on donuts. And I started looking into it, and it turns out that there's a very interesting story that explains how L.A. came to be this way. Today, there are 5,000 independent donut shops in California. No. Yes. Really? Yes, okay. 5,000. Dunkin' Donuts has had a very hard time breaking into the donut market there because of the stranglehold that these independent donut shops huh. have in their local communities. And of those 5,000 shops, 90% are owned by Cambodian Americans. What? Yes. And it all huh. traces back to one guy, a guy named Ted Noy, who came from Cambodia to L.A. in 1975 in the early days of the Khmer Rouge and what right. would become the Cambodian genocide. And he huh. opened a donut shop. He, he saw a donut. He was, he was pumping gas. And he saw a donut shop across the street. He tasted a donut for the first time. He wanted to own his own business. He went into that donut shop. They gave him some tips on how to get started. He got trained in the business and eventually opened his own shop. And he opened a second and a third and a fourth. And then he needed more people. He wanted to open more donut shops. He needed more people to run them for him. And just at this time, the situation in Cambodia got much worse. And scores of refugees began pouring into Southern California. And Ted Noy and his wife sponsored visas, loaned people money, set them up in the donut business, taught them the business, taught them how to run a successful donut business. And it became a thing like they started helping their cousins and their aunts and hmm. uncles. And then those people helped their cousins and friends. And it spread and spread to the point that now you would be hard-pressed to find a Cambodian-American in Southern California who doesn't have some connection to the donut business. And it's a great point of pride for the community. That's, that's a great story. But the story doesn't end there. <laughs> of course. 1975, Ted Noy arrives in L.A. By 1985, he's making over $100,000 a month in the donut business. <laughs> and then he had sort of more disposable income, leisure time. He became addicted to gambling. And over a period of several years, he lost everything and disappeared. This started out as a happy story, 
now you're getting dark on me. So so then what happened? It, it gets dark. Well, well. So this was the subject of a of a major two part odyssey. It was podcast series that we did on the Sporkful called "Searching for the Donut King," because Ted Noy was known as the Donut King in his heyday. And I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler. We did find him. And it turns out that uh, there's quite a story of, of redemption, and he has attempted to make amends for the people that he alienated, but he has a very complicated relationship with the Cambodian community because when he left, uh, sort of in disgrace, he you know he owed a lot of people money, but yet he felt like he had done so much for the community as it was. There were some kind of bad feelings there, and he has just recently come back to Southern California and attempted to make amends with the community and burnish his legacy, which is in itself very interesting because now a lot of those original Cambodian donut makers, the original wave of refugees, they're retiring. And some of their kids are now, you know, they grew up in the U.S., they're doctors and lawyers and teachers, but some of them are taking over the donut shops and trying to evolve them to the next level of sort of gourmet donuts. So I got to ask the obvious question, how are the donuts? So I, I would divide them into two categories. There's the old school Cambodian-owned donut shops, which are very mom and pop shops. These are like the classic glazed, crawlers, chocolate, you know, maybe they'll do a red velvet nowadays, but it's like jelly, uh, right. powdered, you know, the classics. And they're they're served in the typical trademark uh, Southern California pink box. Right. But some of the newer places, like for instance, in this episode of The Sporkful, I went to a place called Sweet Retreat Donuts in Long Beach, California, where a lot of the Cambodian American community is centered. And they do vegan donuts. They do fantastic flavors all kinds of different toppings, pistachio and and blueberry. They made me a donut there that was like a sandwich. They sliced open a glazed yeast donut that didn't have a hole in it, and they filled it with fresh whipped cream and fresh sliced strawberries. It was like a strawberry shortcake times a million. Man, that sounds good. So I'm so excited to see what the next generation of Cambodian-American donut makers are going to bring us. Just please, no savory donuts. Keep them sweet. Right? <laughs> You're not a fan of the bacon, maple bacon? That's a, I, that's a big I, one all over the country now. Please, no. Just, I mean, uh, keep it simple, keep it sweet. I agree. And I also kind of feel, tell me what you think of this, Chris. I, you know, the baconization of everything it's really kind of tired. Like, bacon's good. It has its place. But, like, if you're going to put something savory on a donut, I can think of better things than bacon. Like? I mean, maybe some spiciness, some heat with something sweet on a donut could be nice. Does everything in the world have to get more complex with more choice? I mean, there is something s- sweet, I say that specifically, about the classics. I mean, you know, we'll celebrate with a jelly donut. I'm going glazed cruller for me. I'm sending you a dozen bacon-filled donuts. Dan, uh, the donut story, I'd like to know how it actually ends, but uh, I guess we'll listen to your podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Take care. That was Dan Pashman of the Sporkful Podcast. A 2015 poll asked thousands of Americans which donuts they prefer, and there were no surprises. The winners were the glazed, chocolate glazed, and Boston cream. And the craziest winners featured rainbow sprinkles. But all that is about to change. The donut revolution is here from the cronut to the bright purple taro root donut served in Hawaii to the dead Elvis donut that offers bananas, bacon, peanut butter, and jelly. And of course, there's always the donut go crazy burger. Finally, Dunkin' Donuts meets McDonald's. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded 
to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our television show, and order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsaba. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak, and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugertz. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Cindy Lewis, and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.